Spring is basically a second holiday season. Mother's Day, Father's Day, weddings, the list goes on. And what better way to celebrate them than with Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly is the easiest way to shop local stores and compare prices on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered to your door. Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop qvc.com podcast and use code QVC15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. everyone. Hello, friends. Welcome in. You know, I just realized that I don't ever say my name on the intro and who I am. So if this is your first time listening, hello. My name is Tim. I'm the creator of the New Evangelicals. We are a social media community. We're a podcast platform. We have a Facebook group, all this stuff. And we are trying to push the church forward by holding space for people who are trying to renegotiate and reimagine their faith away from toxic American evangelicalism. That's maybe the best way I've ever summed it up yet. So um, welcome in. In the podcast format is our long way format of exploring different rooms in the Christian tradition. And today is a bonus episode. Okay, so we are doing these monthly, well, really weekly Zoom groups. And one of them that we do on the first of every month is a theology based Zoom group where we have someone who's an expert in something come in and, and break something down for us. This episode, this broadcast that you're going to listen to is a recording from our theology Zoom group where, where we had. Um, Jason Lowe, who is currently getting his PhD, he's in the middle of it, um, uh, unpack inerrancy for us. What does biblical inerrancy mean? Where does it come from? Is it really a good term to use? And why maybe it is or is not helpful for us going forward as new evangelicals? Honestly, friends, I'm just going to say... Get out your notepad, get out the pen and paper, take some notes. This is so good. Jason unpacks how we got here, the context, um, how the cultural moments of the biblical authors and future reformers such as Augustine play a part in, in, in how we see the Bible now. This was so good. So I'm happy to release it for you. I'm happy to have it out there because this needs to hear uh, be listened to by as many people as possible. That being said, nothing that we do is free for us. It is free for you. We do everything behind no paywalls. Everything is community source. If you want to help make this work possible, uh, you can donate by clicking on the link in our show notes. Um, or if you're unable to donate, which we totally understand, after all, it is a pandemic still. Gas is through the roof. Um, we totally get it. If you could share the podcast, that would also be so helpful. If you can give this to a friend and say, check this out, maybe give us a rating and review. We would love that. It would go so far. Our podcast, every time I check, it still keeps growing. I'm humbled by that. We do our best to bring you content and interviews and conversations that we hope are life-giving and helping you to expand your view of the Christian tradition. And this lecture on inerrancy is one for the book. So without further ado, here is the audio from our Zoom group um, titled Inerrancy. Here we go. Got it. Okay. So we're going to cover the historical background. How did uh, inerrancy develop? What are the components that caused it to develop the way that we've experienced it and seen it? And what are various perspectives on how to view this topic outside of maybe the one that we've already been uh, introduced to? So going to start with a very simple definition. There's much more complicated definitions. At the seminary I went to, this was like the uh, go-to guy, and he's pretty common for uh, evangelical seminaries. Um, the inerrancy of scripture means that scripture is the or uh, hope. I I can't. Okay, hold on. I had to move the all your the places. Yeah, there you go. Okay, I might have to move that over there. Um, 
The inerrancy of scripture means that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So sound somewhat familiar? Key terms here, uh, original manuscripts. Uh, other definitions will include infallible without contradictions and usually with a focus on scientific and historical reliability. So how did we get here? First, before things became the way they are, uh, there's three periods of history that we'll think about. Uh, one is pre-modernism, and then modernism, and then post-modernism. Pre-modernism is before the scientific revolution in the 15th century. That's uh, that's the perspective that you know we would look at and say, oh, they're you know that that's really old school. And these are how pre-modern Christians viewed the Bible. One canon, they did not have a canon until the third century. They didn't. It wasn't obviously a priority. For 300 years, can you imagine that? That's nearly as, uh, you know, <laughs> revelation. That, that is how they saw the Bible. They saw it as revelation. Inerrancy, uh, completely void of their conversations. They're not talking about, oh, what, does this passage contradict that passage? Or does this passage contradict science or history? That is not on their radar. That is not one of their thought categories. They were not preoccupied with this. Uh, this is not a preoccupation until the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries. So this is our pyramid of influence. At the top is what we are all familiar with, evangelicalism, and it all starts at the bottom with Plato. Plato has these ideas, and his ideas become saturated in cultural streams. And Augustine drinks from one of these cultural streams. Augustine becomes the most influential person in church history after the Apostle Paul. And so anyone in the Western culture, I should, I should note, in the Western culture who reads the Bible or any tradition in the West, they're reading it through an Augustinian and therefore a Platonic lens. Augustine especially influences the Reformers. The Reformers influence the Puritans and then the Princeton Fathers who really laid down the foundation of evangelicalism and in general and in particular, the uh, idea of inerrancy. So starting with Plato, Platonism. Plato had this idea that, so he's influenced by an earlier philosopher, uh, Pythagoras. You might be familiar with the uh, uh, Pythagorean theorem uh, in geometry. So he had this idea that concepts like mathematics and geometry, they don't age, they don't deteriorate, they don't change. They are therefore, he concluded, perfect. Uh, he had the idea that, let's say, chairs. There is no such thing as a perfect chair. And if there was such thing as a really good chair, even, it would eventually break or deteriorate. It's therefore not perfect. But the concept of chairness, that's immutable, that doesn't change, it's eternal. And therefore, in his head, this reality of uh, what I'm going to call ideals is superior. It's what we kind of would think of in our culture as the spiritual realm. It's the abstract, perfect reality that our reality is predicated on. So he comes up with three, uh, we're going to look at three areas that the immaterial is superior. So in humanity, the soul, he has this idea that there's an immaterial part of us, the soul, that is superior and even trapped in some sense in the physicality in our bodies, and, but the soul is, is the superior. And the afterlife, the afterlife is, is not uh, physical like in the resurrection in the Bible and in, in Judaism, it's, it's immaterial. It's basically what our general culture thinks of as heaven. And then the priority is immateriality, abstract thought. So th just thinking right now, how might that relate to the idea of doctrine, theology, and inerrancy as we've seen it? It assumes that the abstract is superior, right? It, it, it doesn't matter how you treat your body, doesn't matter how you treat your neighbor, doesn't matter how you treat the environment. All that matters is that you have the right thinking what you know, evangelicals would call theology. This, these ideas show up later in history in different forms of Gnosticism. There's Jewish Gnosticism, there's Christian Gnosticism, and also something called Neoplatonism. Uh, another philosopher, Plotinus, he sort of gets really in, uh, influenced by Plato and then rehashes it, which is important because Augustine is incredibly influenced by the writings of this man. So he's incredibly inundated with Platonic ideals. 
So he's a Neoplatonist. Uh, a, you know, all the ideals I just mentioned, the immaterial is superior, superior to the material, prioritizes metaphysics. The metaphysics is like a, uh, a philosophical category of things that basically answer the question, what is it? And that's very important for this discussion because it's not Greeks who wrote the Bible, it's Hebrews. And there's a huge gap between Greek thought and Hebrew thought. There's a book by uh, Dr. Bowman who writes about uh, the difference between Greek and Hebrew thought. And one of the most influential books early on in my, in my uh, theological journey blew my mind away. One of the things that he points out is that Greeks asked the question, what is it? What is its nature? And if you think about like, this is the preoccupation of inerrancy from the very beginning, the preoccupation with uh, many topics, if not all topics in the Bible, what is a person? What is salvation? What, you know, the Hebrews, however, they asked the question, what does it do? And uh, so one example I really like is Greeks are also interested in images. So they think an image is very literal where the Hebrews use images to communicate like poetry. So for example, you have the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20 and 21, and a Greek-minded person reads that and goes, oh, wow, there's, there's a, a boiling lake of lava somewhere that people are going to be in someday. And they're like, wow, that's, that's scary. But a Hebrew is thinking, oh, that's not, that's not a literal image. That's communicating an effect, an effect of you know, something unpleasant, but it's communicating an effect. He assumes the idealism that the abstract is superior to the uh, material. And he has a Platonic understanding of the Bible. Theology must be the point. The, the point is not living it out. The point is not uh, any number of things that we would consider outside the realm of the mind, including emotions. None of that matters. Only thing that matters is how to engage the intellect. He's also one of the first people to articulate ideas about inerrancy. The Bible if you think about it in a Platonic lens, if the abstract is superior, then of course God would not reveal information that has errors in it because you're trying to look at it that way. And also the function of it is not for instructions. It's not for connection in any sort of way. It's for intellectual uh, treasures. What more can I learn from this? Because in Gnosticism, you know how you get saved? You get saved through secret knowledge. Uh, it's actually very interesting if you uh, ever watch any of the Matrixes, especially the first one. Um, the uh, uh, the people who wrote that they were proposing a Gnostic worldview that you know the material is inferior to the immaterial. And actually, Neo Anderson is Greek for new son of man. You could have a whole thing on that, but it's yeah, it's neat. It's it's still a popular idea, and ironically. Uh, Christians might look at certain movies and say, oh, that's pagan. And we're like, well, that's, that's actually very close to what evangelicalism promotes as thinking what the Bible is saying. So Augustine's legacy, what has he contributed? Disembodied souls, which I'll, uh, I don't know about you, but for me, this is what I, I, was, I assumed. You know, oh, of course, I'm going to be a disembodied spirit someday. That's going to really suck. That can't be very fun. Uh, an immaterial heaven. Where, where does a disembodied soul go in a disembodied reality? Again, back from Plato's ideal, there is nothing in this life, in this world that we see that's physical, that's going to last. It all has to be immaterial. And predestination. If you ever read about Calvinism, Arminianism, uh, and those sorts of discussions, all they're doing is recapitulating and regurgitating what Augustine forked out which he got from his Greek philosophy influence. The fall, original sin, and the centrality of knowledge. So the fall and original sin, surprisingly, was not thought of the way that it's typically presented until Augustine. It's actually very foreign to what the, the authors of the Bible uh, seem to envision, and how it was interpreted, at least. And then the centrality of knowledge, and how, that, how does that relate to inerrancy? Like I said, it must be perfect, it must be mathematically precise, and it must be for abstract, ideal, intellectual pursuits. 
So now the reformers skip ahead a millennium. The reformers were incredibly influenced by Augustine. Luther was an Augustinian monk. Uh, Zwingli and Calvin both quote and read, uh, they read and quote Augustine prolifically, like he's their guy. So just as evangelicals look at the reformers as say, yeah, that, this is when Christianity was invented. We, if we want to know what the Bible says, we got to go to the reformers. So the reformers, the reform guy for them was Augustine. And if you think about it, that's, that's really crazy because th that means we would be looking uh, through the Bible, through Plato, through Augustine, through the reformers. And so these are their assumptions. They're Augustinian, of course. All the things that I just said disembodied soul, immaterial heaven, predestination. These are all things that they think are a big deal. That's why Luther had such a problem with the idea of free will, the idea of, of works. He's reading uh, the Bible through an Augustinian lens. And this is exactly what Augustine hashed out with his opponent Pelagius. Nowadays, it's called Arminianism, but it's the same, same principles. And then, of course, it's Platonic. The immaterial is what matters. Material is inferior. Just have the right theology. That's the uh, that's the uh, important thing here. Oh, skipped ahead. Sorry. Um, so infallibility. They assume infallibility, but it is not their focus. Their focus is salvation and disproving Pelagianism. So now another chapter in what has become this cultural stew that creates inerrancy as, as we've come to know it. And it's the rise of modernity. Remember there's, there's pre-modernism, modernism, and post-modernism. And pre-modernism is uh, uh, what people before the 15th century believed. And then you have modernism. It's just really known uh, for science. It's the product of the Renaissance. By no means bad stuff here, obviously, but it has interesting uh, connotations and it has uh, maybe some unexpected results in, in history and how it's related to people who are trying to uh, read and follow the Bible. So in science, uh, you have top guys like Newton, Galileo, Copernicus, uh, Newton. Newton's actually one of my favorites. He's, he's, he was a brilliant guy. If you ever read his stuff, he's, he's very interesting. Had some very bizarre, uh, he actually wrote like a commentary on Revelation, really thought he could prove the timing of Christ. You know, never heard that before. Very, very interesting. Um, Galileo, Copernicus, all, all of these guys, they sort of turned the world upside down with their discoveries. You know, with the, the dawn of physics and calculus with Newton, it sort of suggests that the universe does not run by divine design or revelation. The universe runs by mathematical principles that are exactly perfect and predictable. Along the same lines, you have people who are thinking after the fact of these scientific revolutions, philosophers, uh, Kant, Descartes, and John Locke. They, one of the things that they contribute in regard to modernism, in regard to inerrancy, is think for yourself. You don't need to be dependent on revelation of any sort. You don't need to be dependent on tradition of any sort. Uh, you can think for yourself. And it results in a shift in thinking. So epistemology is a, is a philosophical category for how do we know what we know? Before, that would have been answered with, oh, because, you know, the, the elders told me or, you know, the holy book of whatever you're at, wherever you're at, they, that, that's what told me. But then it changes to, oh, I can think for myself. I can use reason and logic to deduce things on my own or science. I can do experiments, inductive reason. And it creates a shift in thinking in the culture that is radically different. And also, uh, you've probably noticed there's a tendency to be extremely individualistic in mod uh, modernity, in evangelicalism. Um, and this is where it comes from. Independent thought starts out as a really good thing, right? Just can be taken too far. Misunderstood. So this is pre-modernism, revelation, supernatural, uh, ambiguity. That refers to knowledge. Knowledge is ambiguous. It's imprecise. And then a community thinking. They're assuming a community thinking. And pre-modernism still exists in cultures that have not been uh, 
influenced by, by the ideals of modernity. And then here is the change. Supernatural to natural. Revelation to science. Ambiguity to precision. Community to the individual. You can already see how this results in inerrancy because, well, we'll get to that. So, Protestant reaction. Oh, no. This is, this is a threat, right? Uh, if revelation is irrelevant, if uh, our traditions are irrelevant, then, then we're scared and we're going to defend ourselves. That's what happens. And that's exactly what happens. So it, it's very interesting. You have this new shift in understanding, modernity. It has a matrix of criteria for how to evaluate information that assumes scientific inquiry and mathematical precision. And then, so what, what do they do? Instead of saying, well, we have a different set of criteria, they go, oh, no, 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 I can, I can prove the Bible in your criteria. Yeah, just give me a minute. Uh, and so they try to say, yeah, the Bible is mathematically precise. The Bible does prove science. And so it, it starts to become uh, what we see as infallible, uh, without errors, without contradictions, a science book and a history book. It's really not, it's really a miscategorization and it's not fair or reasonable in any sense. Imagine if you tried to teach geometry from a history book. You, you could try to strain what is written in a history book to say, yeah, you see, there is actually some geometrical uh, uh, conclusions that you can make from, from, this, from uh, the Civil War. You can, you can do it. You know, it, it might not be obvious to you, but I can show you how you can do it. Or if you tried to prove science from a poetry book or calculus from a, a, a storybook. And that's exactly what it's like trying to make the Bible a science book or a book that it's not intended to make. It's a miscategorization. It's going to cause a lot of confusion. Uh, it's going to cause a lot of conflict. And fundamentalism, I'm sure you're all familiar with that term. Uh, it's basically tantamount to evangelicalism, but not necessarily. But the beginning, it was. So again, our uh, uh, men who are, yeah, who have influenced this whole mess, Plato, Augustine, the reformers, and then now we'll get into the Princeton fathers and evangelicalism. So remember, there's this crisis going on from modernity that, that's turned revelation on its head, that's, that's you know, messed the whole situation up. There's another component to that. Uh, and the Princeton fathers are the ones who really hammer out the specifics of evangelicalism and inerrancy. Two of the main ones, if you ever read them, they are interesting to read. Uh, I read them before I knew any better, of course. B.B. Warfield and Charles Hodge. Uh, Charles Hodge. He has a, a giant systematic theology in three parts. I think it's uh, theology, soteriology, and anthropology, just mimicking what he read in, in Calvin. And uh, in some sense, there, there's something impressive about it because he's, he's quoting Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, Latin, uh, French, German, and, and he doesn't translate any of it because he assumes his readers are going to know all of these languages because that's who he wrote to. So I was always impressed by that, as wrong or as a, uh, different as his perspectives may be. So they take it, uh, Reformation theology, that's their category modernistic criteria. Okay, so now how can I prove Reformation theology using modernistic criteria? And then, of course, with Reformation theology is Platonic assumptions, because this is all coming from Augustine, who is a Platonist. And then this is their view of the evangelical Bible. It contains abstract entities, in other words, theology. And the, that theology is actually here to support Reformation tenets, uh, not anyone else's, just Reformation tenets. And it has mathematical precision. Yes, it can answer to modernity. Yes, the, uh, we, we can prove it. And, and there are no errors defined by your uh, criteria. Modern defense. Uh, this is the realm of apologetics. They were, in some sense, the... the uh, the forefathers of modern day apologists. So this results in a view that is called classical inerrancy. Before getting to that, there's a couple of points about their, their assumptions. They assume the Bible is mainly propositional. So a proposition is an assertion. It's a claim. 
it's not a statement of uh, it's not poetry. It's not myth. It's not story. It's uh, I am talking right now. It's a claim. It, it's usually used in the form of an argument. Uh, other categories would be something like a narrative, poetry, or mythology. They assume the Bible is purely or uh, essentially propositional. They Their interpretive method assumes, I thought this was very interesting. One um, church historian put it as, they assume the Bible was a not yet systematized reservoir of doctrinal facts that just needed someone with the right categories to come along and put them in the right order. I just found that was very interesting. I mean, can you imagine taking uh, somebody's book and then putting in a blender so that every, you know, it's just cut up in a, a million pieces and then rearranging it according to categories that you decided the author was really trying to get at and then putting it back together and saying, yeah, see, this is actually uh, what Shakespeare is trying to say, but you wouldn't know that because you're not reading it through my categories. And that's exactly what we have with the Reformation, with uh, evangelicalism as well. So some examples, the Chicago Society of Biblical Inerrancy, otherwise the Moody Bible Institute, the real hub of evangelical theology. Uh, I'm not going to get into their, their statement. Wayne Grudem, I already mentioned him. He's a systematic theologian. Um, systematic theology, by the way, is, is what the Princeton fathers tried to do. They tried to take Reformation theology and say, okay, how can we really systematize it? using the Bible. It, it's very interesting because, first of all, it assumes that, the, that there are no nuances in the authors and the perspectives. Like you don't really even need to know anything about the historical context of the Bible. You don't need to know anything about the authors of the Bible because to them, there is only one author. It's basically uh, robbed of any human effort, which is just not honest. Uh, humans wrote it. It's a very human process. Uh, another systematic theologian is Millard Erickson, uh, Al Mohler, and majority of evangelical denominations. Now, of course, there's variations all over the place. So what about some other views? Uh, Roman Catholicism actually got on board with the modernic uh, understand, reaction against modernity, uh, uh, the, the definition of inerrancy. They claim the same thing. There is no myth. There is no error. There is no contradiction. Eastern Orthodoxy, their understanding is, uh, so that, that's an interesting sect. I'd actually like to learn a lot more about them because, so, you know, the reformers split off from the Catholic Church in the 16th century, but before that, the only other split in the West, at least, was in the 11th century between Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church. And so they went on their own path while the West went on our path. And so they're not influenced by modernity the way we are. But what's interesting is they're sort of frozen by the councils uh, in the third, fourth, and fifth centuries. So that is their criteria. So to understand what they believe, we just have to go to those councils in the third, fourth, and fifth century. And then back in the West, you have Frederick, Frederick Schleiermacher. He denied inerrancy, uh, but still thought the Bible was important. He said, he's, an, he's known as an existentialist. You know, he's, it's a form of philosophy that, uh, goes against modernity and says, what really matters is your personal experience. And so he said, uh, the experience of trusting in God, that, that is the validation. You don't need validation in, in anything else. Interesting perspective. And then Karl Barth. Um, he said, the word of God is contained in the Bible, but it is not the same as the Bible because the Bible was made by humans. He acknowledged that part. Uh, but so, you know, it, it, he says it's, it's got all kinds of contradictions. It's got developing theology from the beginning to end. It's a very human book. For him, the word of God doesn't become uh, in existence until the spirit makes it come in contact with the reader. So that was his point of view, which is, which is interesting. Uh, and he influences a couple other guys, Bernard Ram. Uh, you might have heard of Clark uh, Pinnock. He's a, an annihilationist. Uh, he's got some, he, he, he took part in, uh, uh, there's a series called Pounder, uh, Counterpoints. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Uh, they explore, yeah, Tim shaking his head. They explore uh, these issues. There's actually a book written on inerrancy, five different authors 
uh, on inerrancy. And they get a scholar who takes a, a different take on each of these views, and then they have them, you know, dish it out. Clark Pinnock uh, does that in one of those books, uh, and he takes up annihilationism. But he denies inerrancy. He follows Bart, saying that uh, the Bible is like light, but we don't really get to the light. We get to the light, or the Bible is a light bulb. We get the light from the light bulb. Uh, like that, that was just the analogy he used to communicate the same thing. The Bible is not God's word, but God's word comes from the Bible, if that makes sense. Now that you've taken on that big job, you shouldn't have to settle for the big box. You've earned a trip to Northern Tool, and we're ready for the details. We know all about the little things that make the biggest difference. Maybe that's why they call us a problem solver's paradise. From pressure washers to power tools, pallet jacks to push carts, Northern Tool and Equipment carries the brands you depend on, like Northstar, DeWalt, Milwaukee, and Strongway. We're made for this. Come see us in-store or shop online at northerntool.com. Grand Canyon University values all mothers this Mother's Day. You show us how to live a Christ-centered life. Your strength and care instill purpose and build a welcoming home where we flourish and grow. GCU is proud to celebrate you today and support you along the way while you make time for what matters most. Happy Mother's Day from Grand Canyon University. And some other evangelical options. Most of these are presented in the book. Michael Bird, uh, he had some good points. He says, we must be comfortable with the ambiguities and apparent contradictions because that's not the point. The point, uh, the details are incidental to the purpose. The purpose, he argues, is... Uh, The purpose is to be able to rely on what God has instructed us to connect God to us and other people. He brings up an interesting perspective that uh, inerrancy should never define a person's Christianity. This is something I personally think is probably the most important thing in discussing a lot of theological issues because there's so much abuse done in the name of dogma because dogma becomes the identity marker. It says, okay, if you believe like me, then I will, I'll, I'll treat you like family. But the second that you do not, I will treat you like an enemy and I will commit all sorts of dehumanizing behaviors and ostracization and oppression against you if you do not agree with me. And so the most important, one of the, in my opinion, the most important point is to realize that inerrancy does not define a person's Christianity, but in history, who has been the person who has? Uh, conservative white American col colonial individuals. He argues for, instead of inerrancy, as a helpful suggestion uh, of divine truthfulness. So the focus is on the faithfulness of the function of the Bible. Another one, Kevin Van Hooser. He's, he seems a little bit closer to Al Mueller, but definitely appears more open. Uh, points to the imprecise nature of language. It makes some interesting points. Uh, for example, is the word cat true or false? Well, that's ridiculous. A cat is not an assertion. And he follows that line of thought to show, you know, the, the nature of language is very imprecise. I'll get back to that in the closing thoughts. But he also kind of comes up to the, with the same conclusion that the Bible can be relied on to accomplish its purpose and that purpose is definitely not supposed to be uh, infallibility in the minutia, is what he says. And then another one is uh, Peter Entz. Uh, his view, uh, you can appreciate his view, I do. Uh, he says the Bible is a lot more complicated than the classical view. It does have contradictions. It does have different theologies. And it communicates through a worldview. And I might add uh, very pagan worldviews in the sense that the, the Bible borrows a lot of imagery and rhetorical devices from the ancient Near East and from all kinds of uh, neighbors, uh, Hellenism and Roman Romans, uh, they borrow their language, not just their language, but their very idea. And this is, this is how the revelation in this theory goes. He proposed that we must do the history first. That's something, if you read that book, Al Mohler, uh, Amor does not focus on the history. He focuses, one, a lot on evangelicalism, makes it very clear, I'm not going to be your friend unless you agree with me on all this. 
and you're not a real Christian unless you agree with me on this, but he also does not talk about doing history at all. It, 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 it sort of assumes what I said about B.B. Uh, B. Warfield and Charles Hodge, the Princeton fathers. We don't need to do history. We just need to be really smart and no Reformation categories. Uh, proposes that it's not necessarily literal in a lot of senses. This goes back to the historical observation. What, what does it mean to be literal? I remember I was reading a book by a guy I was going to seminary with. He was trying to prove, I don't remember what it was, but he really wanted me to read this, his friend's book, this, this scholar uh, friend of his. And so I read the book. In the very beginning, it says we have to get the, our, how we read the Bible. And this is what he said. We must take the Bible in its common sense meaning. I was like, common sense to who? We all read this and interpret it very differently. This is a very subjective process. What I take a word to mean is not what you take it to mean because I've had a different life than you and I've heard different things from you. And, and, but that's exactly what Peter Enns is getting at here. We have to go back and do the history. What, what were the rhetorical devices? How was the language used back then? Cultural imagery, uh, mythology, and other analogous ways of speaking. He finally lands with a much more ambiguous understanding. He says, no matter what is encountered, the reader is in the presence of wisdom, the wisdom and mystery of our God. Lots of room for disagreement and ambiguity in his, in his statement. So I wanted to close with a couple of uh, concluding thoughts to sort of string together uh, some of this information. You know, we've talked about philosophy and history and and science, and how does that relate to inerrancy? Just a couple of thoughts, and these are these are my suggestions from from our discussion. Um, we have to consider these three things: context, category, and purpose. And by category, I mean thought categories. And we have to consider the context that is ancient. So, if Genesis is written in the ancient Near East, thousands of years ago, we need to be informed maybe not individually, but the people that are influencing how we read it, how did their neighbors think? How did their neighbors talk? If we're talking first century Christianity, we need to think Roman and Hellenistic. Uh, how did the first century Jewish person read their Bible? That's probably going to be a lot closer than how a 21st century American reads their Bible. And then thought categories, being sensitive to the thought categories. Uh, so for example, if we assume the Bible is a science book, we're going to walk away sorely disappointed. If we understand it as revelation, that will give us a much different uh, thought category. Another one is what I mentioned before is the difference between Hebrew thought and Greek thought. Another point, not just that the images are not to communicate an image, but an effect is chronology. This is another big point of people who try to do what they call literal readings of the Bible. Oh, oh, Matthew's gospel must be in chronological order. Therefore, as one pastor told me, uh, there must be two temple cleansings in Jesus's life because we see it at the beginning of his ministry in John, but at the end of his ministry in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And th the problem with that is Greeks assume a linear chronology where Hebrews do not. Hebrews categorize their information according to themes. So John places the temple cleansing at the begin, beginning of his gospel because that correlates with his, with his specific intention of that context of what he's writing about. Another category to consider is that what, what is truth? You know, that's sort of like asking what is common sense? Uh, well, truth to Al Mohler is abstract, immaterial entities, just like the reformers said, just like Augustine said, just like Plato proposed. Hebrew word for truth is actually very different and very interesting. The Hebrew word is emets, the noun, which is based on the verb, which means to be reliable or, or trustworthy. So it's not talking about something that's abstract and like, yes, that is objectively in, uh, good, true information. They're saying, no, this, this is instruction, let's say, and that instruction has been reliable for me and how it operates. Very, very different. And then the nature of the Bible. Language is, is, not, in, is not perfect. Uh, I love thinking about this. How did we first discover how to read hieroglyphics? We had no 
understanding, no knowledge. They had to piece it together. It's the same way a baby learns to, to, to speak. You know, it, it's pure statistics. It's, okay, that word goes with that word. And, and eventually you sort of pick it up. But if you think about how does a specific word become defined by the context in which it's used in all the occurrences that, have, that are available to us, right? Uh, well, how do we know the context of the words around it? Same thing the context in which those words are used. I mean, if you think about it theoretically, it almost would sound impossible to learn uh, a language from scratch like that, but you know, babies do it all the time. Uh, and we, we've done it with ancient uh, culture. Uh, another example of that is in uh, 1 Timothy 2, there's a word about that's been used to subjugate women that is in reference to a woman was learned in silence and, you know, all, uh, uh, and that's been, that's, a, that's called a hoplexagomenon. That word is only used one time in the Bible. It, no one has a clue just by reading the Bible what that means. Now, there's a couple of occurrences outside of the Bible, but each one of those does not give a lot of information. My point is, theoretically, if they were to find uh, several more manuscripts that had that word in it, it could completely bring on different, completely different understandings of that word. And, and so it could be for, for lots of other language. So just language is imprecise. But the same point is language is not agnostic. We're able to communicate somehow. We're able to learn languages somehow. So to me, it seems there is a middle ground between imprecision and complete, I don't have, there is nothing reliable whatsoever. That's my take on that. Uh, and then progressive theology. This is something that was real, uh, is not uh, taken very lightly in evangelicalism. There is no progression, according to them. Genesis had Jesus in mind from the very beginning, according to them. And uh, biblical scholars don't tend to think that way. They tend to see, oh, well, actually, these texts are very obviously influenced by one another. And so you see the text in Genesis has some themes. Those themes are repeated. The language and the, the events are recapitulated. What goes on with Adam repeats with all the other characters. And that's repeated in the other books. It's repeated in the books that are not included in the Bible, like Enoch. Enoch, for example, is another book that is incredibly influential to the New Testament and Revelation. And so it's, it's progressive. It's, they're slowly building on it. So when you see some uh, ethical dilemmas in the Old Testament, one way to address them is, this is not an ideal, this is a leading. This is, a it's supposed to evolve and keep going. Same with the New Testament. The New Testament does not explicitly say, get rid of your slaves, but there seems to be very good reasons to suppose that that is the direction that we were supposed to take things as we continue to progress and evolve ourselves. And then finally, what is central? This is huge because it really determines who is in and who is out. And that's one of the most important questions we can ask as, as people, because how we answer that question will determine if we treat people as non-humans and think of them as non-humans. And once we do that, uh, then, then it's over. We start going to war with each other. We start uh, ostracizing each other and oppressing each other. And apologetics. The, the whole time, evangelicalism, and I, you know, back in the day, before I bring you any better, I, I, was, I was huge into this, I'll have to admit it. And, uh, and I, you know, I could, I could tell you, honestly, it didn't seem to really work, but I'm going to do it anyways, and eventually I stopped. But one thing that I always crossed, that I always thought was amazing is there are actual instructions on how to uh, make something convincing in regarding to Jesus. Jesus said it very clearly, by your love for one another, people will know that you're my disciples. And then in, in John 17, he prays for unity for his followers. He says, may they be one as we are one, that the world may know that you sent me. Love and unity should have been the priority for anyone who is preoccupied with proving uh, the Bible. And instead, those are like, nah, those don't really matter. In fact, let's destroy each other and other people who disagree, because I've got a better idea that I've borrowed from the reformers who borrowed it from Augustine, who borrowed it from Plato. So to summarize all that, in case you completely spaced out, here's, here's three uh, words. <laughs> the Bible, and this is my take again, the Bible is a uh, an alternative to inerrant. The Bible is effective, reliable, and revelation. Does not mean it answers my scientific or historical inquiries, does not mean it does not contain errors, and it certainly doesn't mean anything about the original manuscripts, none of which we have.
Any questions? Great job, Jason. Wow. Um, woo. And it's funny. I did write in some of my notes. I'm like, you know, your Wayne Grudem quote. I'm like, we don't have the original manuscripts, Wayne. Like, <laughs> right. I don't know how you define how that. I don't know how you assume that they're inerrant. Um, yeah, this is really helpful. Um, I, I think, and again, I can't speak for everyone who's watching or listening to this, but um, these are the questions, right? That that a lot of us were taught and and asked, and or that we we, we were taught that you know the Bible is everything that, that you kind of said in the beginning. Uh, it's just God's direct word to us. It's it's to be taken literally, or the most simplistic and most logical interpretation must be the mo- the right one. And I think something that struck me is um is is how how even the early not only biblical authors um but you know augustine they were all drawing from their own cultural context and right. it's frustrating i think when when um when i think we're told right by people that maybe we see uh, in in the world who are like oh the, the culture is just destroying the church like you're just you're just handing yourself over to the spirit of the age it's like well i mean that's just to be human i mean even right. the biblical authors are writing in their cultural moment and they're influenced by it augustine is influenced and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's bad you know it's just it's part of life so i appreciate you uh, you, you mentioning that um, okay, we have a few questions. I have a few questions for my, uh, myself uh, uh, for myself to ask you. One of them I thought was really good. Someone asked, and this is a, it's in the same vein. It's like one step to the left, but I think it's important. Why do people think that we even need a systematic theology? Like, like why that need in the first place in, from, from, from your vantage point? Uh, it's, it's sort of like what we saw. It assumes um, an exhaustive criteria. The system, so apart from the system being from Reformation categories, just the idea of systematizing, I think what we're meaning, what we mean by that is we take, we can deduce a a list of principles that are in the Bible, and we don't have to consider who said what or when, and we can arrange them logically. And just the very fact that we're doing that, that's a very uh, modernistic thing to do. Because in in modernism, it goes back to the scientific inquiry and mathematical precision. And the equivalent to math in language is propositional truth. So uh, if you've ever read a logic book, um, a syllogism is a statement like all A is B, all B is C, therefore, you know, all A is C. And and so there's, and that's, you know, theoretically 100% accurate. And so they're assuming, ah, well, the Bible obviously is going to do this too. So let's categorize everything according to, and that is, that's another thing. It assumes categories. You can come to different conclusions. Yeah. It's also not being aware of, as I said, the, the different contexts. Like there, there's an exact quote in Paul that says, we are not saved by works of the law. That is opposite exactly of what James says. We are saved by works of the law. <laughs> and, and, and so I was like, well, they, they couldn't, you know, what, what do they mean? Mm. Taking a face value, face value, according to, you know, that's a contradiction. Right. And so it's devoid of uh, appreciating the specific context of every single author. Yeah, and I I also feel like, and I'm putting this maybe in more of a, a layman's terms for my own, you know, non-academic mind, but essentially it's like sticking these objective categories on a book that's not claiming to have those categories isn't fair to the book, right? And yeah, so like, right. You know, people Because people will say, well, we obviously know objective truth, like two plus two is four. So are you saying the Bible is not objective? And what, and what I think we should say is, well, the Bible is is not, that, that it's not the same thing. Like, there, like, for example, you know, there's a reason why scholars don't debate a flat earth. Because it's pretty settled that like that it's objectively we can verify this right, but there's a reason why scholars debate almost everything about the Bible because there's it's just not the same thing. It yeah, has to be exactly. Taken, you know, in 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 its own contextual moment. So that is helpful for sure. Um, okay, someone asked. I think it's a great question. What might you say to someone who would respond to this with? 
well, you shouldn't need doctorates in history, Hebrew and Greek to be able to understand and apply the Bible because we have the Holy Spirit, something like that. You know, what would you say? Because I think that's a fair question, but also like I very much, the more and more I do this work, the more I'm like, yeah, you know, I kind of get the whole Catholic thing, you know, like we'll interpret the <laughs> right. Bible for you because uh, if, if we give this to everyone else, it's going to be a complete shit show. Um, like, I, I kind of get it, you know? Right. So wh- what, what, what would you say uh, to, to someone like that? Uh, I have that sort of thinking all the time, you know, this should not be the way that it is. Mm. And, uh, well, it is the way that it is, uh, because think without scholarship of any kind, what is the Bible? It's, it's, it's nothing accessible to anybody. Mm. It's a, it's a, uh, mess of, of manuscripts scattered all over, uh, the desert that are in dead languages, in foreign languages, and they don't have vowel points, by the way, to talk about the imprecise nature of language. The Masoretic text added vowel points much, 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 much later. But they, you know, they read this stuff, they read their Greek and, or their Hebrew and Aramaic without any vowel points. It's completely mm. imprecise. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think about... Um... Going back to uh, the five views of inerrancy, which, by the way, I recommended in the chat as you brought before you brought it up. I'm like, oh, I'm so glad you're you're, you're talking about that because that's a great book. It's it's so accessible in the audiobook, Every author reads their own essay, which I love. Oh, no. Um, and I love Michael Bird's hilarious in that. And but anyway, Pete Ends, who I really like a lot, he ma- he makes a, he made a point for me that that really stood out to me that I think will will help us. He says, "Listen, regardless of the Bible that you want, this is the Bible that we have." Like, you know, I don't make the rules, right? Like, this is just how it functions. Like you said, uh, Jason, it's scattered manuscripts throughout the desert. Some are in dead languages. Like, regardless of what of how inerrant you want it to be, that's just not the reality of what we currently have. And for whatever reason, the 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 scripts, the manuscripts that that, that God wanted us to have, like, you know, and I appreciate that perspective because it's just it's grounded in reality, which I think we have to deal with. Yeah, and, and two quick points on that is is one, um, it seems to be, you know, from my perspective, God is primarily concerned with our relationships. You know, what we do for work or play or rest, that's incidental to the relationships that we are supposed to be pursuing, cultivating, and, and experiencing and giving healing in. Mm. And so that happens with categories of work and so and play. And there's a lot of overlap with some things like nerding out on the Bible. And so we get to do this together. Mm. It, it gives us something to do together. And, and then another point is it's not necessary uh, – to know there's there's a tremendous amount that you can learn about the bible that is absolutely not necessary for loving your neighbor as yourself which is the whole point yeah. and so that's another point to consider like some of this is just fun yeah <laughs> i mean I, i'm spending my life devoted to it i i don't think it's just fun right. but i gotta also take it with the you know a grain of salt like right. hey, a lot of the stuff i'm reading is is it really gonna are you going to like really miss out a whole lot if you don't hear, hear how Enoch influenced Revelation? Probably not. Mm, mm. Someone asked, um, they would love to hear you speak the impact of inerrancy as a theological foundation for fundamentalism. So I know you kind of touched on that briefly, but can you maybe just speak a little bit more to that of like of, of how impactful this inerrancy view is to fundamentalist theology that that frankly speaking most of us have either grown up in or have inherited yeah uh so it's it's central to fundamentalism because according to their logic so fundamentalism really goes back uh to the five fundamentals that are are hammered out in reaction to evolution and and other things that were considered liberal and a threat and there were five of them but the most central is inerrancy, because if you deny that, then you don't have the other four. So it, that's why it's really become the center of evangelicalism. I mean, if you ever, I don't know about the specific context you've seen, but you look around the houses and the churches that, that are in these circles and you think, wow, they really seem to like this book a lot. Like this seems to be like the thing that they're worshiping, really. Mm. This is the center. Yeah, and I found that, and I'm sure a lot of us have seen this. I'm realizing more and more it's really their interpretation that they're worshiping. Oh, absolutely, the Bible, yeah. right? Like, like they and I, 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 
we're not talking about this in a dehumanizing sense. We're not trying to other them, right? Right, but, right. But what I've what I've seen in my experience is that a lot of people in these circles, and I grew up with them, and I still follow them now on Twitter. They really seem to when they say the Bible says or God's word says, what they're really saying is how I interpret this text is really what the the divine being at the center of the universe is saying, which really puts themselves in the place of God ultimately. I mean, they would they yeah. would deny that, but that's what they're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you for being sensitive to that. We can never be too sensitive to even the people who have oppressed us and abused us. The only way to stop that cycle is unconditional acceptance and love. Mm. So it, it is absolutely essential to these conversations. Great. Um, Someone yeah, asked, and I, I like this a lot, actually. What do you think of Bart Ehrman's book, Jesus Interrupted? He talks about the contradictions in the Bible. I'll be honest, even though I'm a, I'm a total Jesus follower, I, I, I would I, I, I see the Gospels as reliable, even though I know they have problems. I really enjoy Bart's debates. I enjoy his perspectives. I think he does a great job of just being honest and transparent. What are your thoughts on him and, and, and that book? Oh, yeah. You, you can't walk away from listening to or reading Bart Ehrman for the most part and not be like, man, I kind of like this guy. <laughs> he's very charismatic. When he debates with uh, Daniel Wallace, and Daniel Wallace yes. is such a nerd, he's he's also a sweetheart, but he just isn't as uh, you know fun to listen to as Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is just funny. He's charismatic. Yes, he's outgoing. Yes. Uh, and yeah, his arguments seem pretty sound, and you can empathize with his journey. Uh, he yes. went to, he graduated from Booby, uh, Booby, <laughs> Moody Bible Institute, and, you know, so for him, I, I totally appreciate where he landed, even though I don't agree with where he landed. I mean, with his decision uh, in regard to Jesus, but his understanding of the Bible, like he's a fantastic exegete. He knows how to follow the flow of an ancient text better yes. than you know, better than many, better than now, most. I really enjoyed his book, um, Heaven and Hell, too, kind of tracing the history of how we kind of got our modern ideas of heaven and hell. I found it very fascinating. Um, one thing I'll say, too, for all of you out there, I really recommend um, watching the Bart uh, Daniel Wallace debate. It's it's long, but it's good. And, and here's the thing. So Daniel Wallace is obviously representing the side of like, we can trust the Bible, despite us not having the original manuscripts, but even Daniel agrees that that it's really a matter of probability than absolutism, which I really appreciate because the reality is when you dive into it, even the most fundamentalist people like James White agree that we don't have the original manuscripts. So this is like this is not a, a contested point. All right, we got a few minutes left, and I'll let you guys go. If you have any questions, uh, I have a few more for me, Dash, Jason, while you're all here, and then if uh, if we're all done, uh, we'll, we'll wrap up. So one of my questions to you was. You know, so so how how do we view the Bible then, right? If the category that we've been brought up and kind of indoctrinated into is totally blown to smithereens, um, do we see it as inspired? Is it just a bunch of books assembled? You know, I, I kind of like how Tim Mackey talks about it, where he's kind of like the handshake. It's like, well, who's holding who? You know, it's like part God, part human, and it's really intertwined and interwoven. And it's complicated and it's messy. That kind of helps me, but I would, I would love your thoughts on that. Yeah, that, that sounds a little bit like what Karl Barth said, which I, I think is a very helpful perspective because it's honest uh, to the nature of what we have here and what we think we have. Mm. Uh, what we, I should say what, what I believe we have. Yeah, uh, I, I do believe that it is revelation. Uh, I do not find the category infallibility or inerrancy very helpful. Mm. One, that doesn't help me read it. It doesn't help me understand it. And it doesn't help me live it out. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like the Greek or the Hebrew paradigm from what is it to what does it do? And so I, I like to see it as what is this intended for? What, why was this given to me? And what's funny is they use the word inspire uh, from uh, a word that really means God breathed in 2 Timothy 3.16. But mm -hmm. what's really fascinating is what does he go on to say uh, so that everyone could be equipped for good works? Mm -hmm. and, and the context there is really interesting too, because what he could be alluding to. So God breathed. This is the same word, uh, breath, spirit, same in Greek and Hebrew. It, it could very well be alluding to the spirit hovering over the chaos waters of darkness in Genesis 1-2, which is a huge, uh, huge theme in the Bible. And if so, could be saying we get to participate in God's act of creation, which is organizing chaos and bringing order according to this beautiful design design where humans are so happy and blessed and, and intertwined in this just happy, never ending, uh, love story. Mm. That's great. Um, I love that. And, um, yeah, I, I think my, my closing thoughts, friends is thank you of course for being here, everyone. And Jason, thank you for on such short notice 
putting together such a badass presentation. I think uh, just my final takeaways for all of us to be thinking about and meditating on is that it's so important to realize how many layers removed we are just from the Bible that we read. You know, I think it's easy for us to read the book and think, oh, English, this is just how they're talking. But like Jason even pointed out, even Genesis and, and, and how it's kind of like telling the creation narrative over and over again, you know, and, and there are just certain words in the Hebrew and, and the Bible project does a great job of talking about this. You know, you wouldn't really pick up on it if you didn't know like the context. And, and so there's just, so just approach with curiosity. There's so much happening. There's so much to uncover that just helps us put a little more clarity to what, to what, 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 what we're trying to understand, which like, I think you put it so well, how do we partner with God to, to make order out of chaos, to, to promote human flourishing you know, and to love our neighbor. I mean, that, that's what it really boils down to. But the Bible can be, as we've discovered, friends, a, a great tool of liberation or a, a massive tool of oppression. And so we have to treat it kindly and be wise with how we handle it and, and always realize that we're reading many layers removed from the original <laughs> manuscript. So um, I, I will sh- I will save this recording. I will try and get this up, friends, uh, on our podcast. It's like a bonus episode uh, before the baby comes. So hopefully I can do that because I think this, uh, this needs to be heard. So Jason, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you doing it. And friends, it was great having you here. We'll talk all again soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely.